This programming is sponsored by the Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Care Center at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, offering comprehensive cancer care that is compassionate, personalized, and driven by clinical research. More at stlukeshealth.org cancer. Last night, President Biden delivered his State of the Union address. In the hour-long, hour-plus-long speech, a lot of ground was covered. Many praised his remarks as unifying, forward-facing, and motivating. Others, including some actually in the chambers, responded to the speech with boos and shouts out of liar. From drug costs to taxes, Medicare and Social Security, a feisty president pushed back at occasional outbursts. He acknowledged assault weapons and abortion rights, the border and Ukraine, but didn't seem to give anyone a satisfying response to the recent China spy balloon. He wrapped it all up with a call out to secure our democracy and avoid partisan bickering. What did you think of the State of the Union? Our phone lines are open for your thoughts, questions, and comments. 888-486-9677. Town Square with Ernie Manoos is made possible with support from listeners like you. Subscribe to our daily podcast and find episodes at townsquaretalk.org. Hello, I'm Ernie Manus, and this is Town Square. Last night, President Biden delivered his State of the Union address, and it was a full evening. In his first address to a divided Congress, the president shared the successes he's achieved in his first two years in office and focused on the issues Americans care about most. It was a feisty night, and coming up, we'll break it down with Julie Mason from Sirius XM. We also want to know what you thought of the address last night. Give us a call. Our number is 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. But before that, another energetic show is lighting up the stage and thrilling audiences right here in Houston. Here to tell us all about that is Alex McAleer. He is a mind reader currently appearing in the Champions of Magic Tour. Champions of Magic is playing at the Hobby Center for the Performing Arts through February 17th. You can find out more information at thehobbycenter.org. Alex, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you here. I was raised on a steady diet growing up of circuses and magic. And within the world of magic, I was always fascinated by that subcategory of uh, mentalists or mind readers. I'm curious, what attracted you to that area of magic? I see. I'm glad to hear you embark on a good diet of circus and, and magic. That's <laughs> good. Uh, so what attracted me to mentalism was, well, I, I'm an only child. I grew up as an only child. So I had lots of hobbies. And I guess one of them was magic. You know, I had a couple of magic books, books and a magic kit and stuff. But it was in my early teens that I got into the mentalism. I think initially it started from um, a book I was bought about memory tricks and memory techniques, you know, mnemonics and that sort of stuff. I think my dad bought me that book to try and help me with my exams and stuff so I could just memorize answers. And it sort of worked. <laughs> but at the back of the book, it, it like the book encourages you to show off by with your friends, you know, saying the alphabet backwards or quickly memorizing a list. And at the back of the book, it recommended other books. And some of those books were mentalism books because they had memory tricks in them. And I, you know, ordered those, uh, read them, and then was really interested in this version or this style of magic. I think as well it was because you didn't need big props or boxes. Mm -hmm. You could just you could just be yourself. You could just be one person doing it. And, uh, yeah, then I started doing tricks for friends and then family. And then I put together a little act, and it sort of grew from there. And I just it really captured my, uh, captured my imagination. 
When I used to do magic as a kid, the uh, I did a lot of sleight of hand, but I very quickly moved away from that into illusions because I was always so worried. You could so easily screw up the, the pressure that was on you. And that's the reason I never tried any mentalism because the pressure of getting it right and if you get it wrong, how it's not just the trick went wrong. Suddenly you've created the sense of disbelief from your audience that you're able to achieve what you've been telling them you can do. Do you think about that? Is that part of what you go through or have I just added more stress to your night? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, like it absolutely goes through, all, through your mind. I try to push it to the back of my mind, I try not to worry about it. But I guess one thing with mentalism is if you're sort of close or you're, you know, you're near enough, like if, just to use an example, like if someone's thinking of a playing card, for example, and I say the four of spades, but it's the four of clubs, you know, people can see that's close enough. Like it's four, it's a black card, you're off by one. People give you a little bit of credit when you're just sort of close or you mispronounce the name or something like that. But uh, yeah, it is, it is like it is pretty embarrassing and pretty galling if you go out there and say, <laughs> I'm a mind reader and you just completely get it wrong. It just makes you a liar, basically, because <laughs> you didn't do it. <laughs> Now, you are not traveling in a show called the Mediocrity of Magic or the, hey, they're pretty good of magic tour. You're the champions of magic. What made you a champion? What made me a champion? Um, I often ask myself that question. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I'm not sure. I think, well, the producer of the show, he started by uh, producing comedy shows, you know, stand-up comedy, you know, three or four or five acts in it. And then um, he was quite into magic, so then he did the same thing with magic. And he wanted to find a cast of people and, you know, he found some illusionist, a close-up person, a manipulation. He was looking for a mentalist and he happened to see me in a show. And I think he quite likes what I did because I don't take it too seriously. I'm not one of those dark and brooding and mysterious mentalists. <laughs> I try to have fun with it, keep the audience entertained and laughing. I think he quite likes that. I think in his mind that made me a, made me a champion, that uh, the audience were having a good time as well as being amazed by the mentalism yeah uh so yeah i think that's what makes me uh, a champion i guess <laughs> <laughs> now we were taught we did a whole show on circus last week and that's why i mentioned that a few minutes ago but uh, mm. what, what we talked about a bit on that show was programs like america's got talent or britain's got talent they they are showing us acts that usually a lot of at least in the american um uh entertainment world we didn't see a lot of it anymore and so it was like these specialty acts and these magic acts and stuff and like you mentioned a lot of the mentalism comes out with these very dark and, and mysterious people creating this illusion that what they are doing is not trickery it is real and some spirits are guiding them your approach and feelings about that uh, about mentalists who sort of the pretend it's all real and mysterious the, the spirits guess, and the dark demons are taking them over yeah it was kind of, it's kind of nice with shows like the Got Talent shows and stuff. Uh, people know more about mentalism. They know that some people, some people say they're psychic. Some people say they're not psychic. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe it's trickery. I think people know a bit more about it now. So it's less of a struggle to sort of, you don't have to keep telling the audience this isn't psychic or you don't have to convince them one way or the other. I tend not to say too much about it on stage. I, I do say at the start of my act that I'm not psychic. I don't read palms or talk to the dead. I read people and talk to the living um, because they, they answer back. But um, I tend to think, though, that uh, the people that pretend it's all psychic and they know full well that they're not doing it, that's definitely a version of, of fraud, of charlatanism. But I know those people can offer some people a lot of help and that sort of thing, or a lot of comfort, at least. Uh, but it's not really something 
theatrically that interests me about yeah. it being sort of psychic and you know about it's about sort of um feelings and you know you don't really know where these thoughts or ideas or powers come from i prefer the idea that what you're seeing on stage is a man who's got some sort of secret techniques and skills and apparently he could look at you and just tell you all sorts of things about you i think that's more dramatically exciting than yeah. uh, someone just sort of saying oh i get these feelings occasionally about stuff there's a cleverness to it all that i think we appreciate watching it and uh, I, I'm always thrilled when I say I have not yet seen you guys while you're in town here yet, but I do have my tickets for next week and I'm going to be there cheering you on and excited about it. We're talking about what you do. Tell us what else we see in an evening of Champions of Magic. Yeah, well, because it's an ensemble cast. And what's great about the show is um, you get to see every style of, of magic. So there's mm -hmm. the, my style, which is the mentalism and, and mind reading. There's also escapology. So we have an escape artist called Fernando, Fernando Velasco. He, um, you know, upside down, an old straight jacket escapes just in time. You know, there's the water tank. He does that as well. Uh, so that's really thrilling. If you've never seen something like that live. Uh, we also have Holly England. Uh, she originally started her life as a dancer and then became uh, a magical assistant. You know, the girl that gets in the box. But uh, more recently, in the past couple of years, she has become a magician in her own right and puts her own sort of fun little spin on things. And also we have Young and Strange as well, who are also from England. And they're a double act, but they are, those are their real names as well, Richard Young and Strange. And uh, they're the double act, but they also, they do the big illusions, you know, the fire, the spike, the boxes. And uh, they have this whole homage to that sort of cheesy 1980s Las Vegas magic. Uh, <laughs> you know, with their tongue firmly in their cheek, they do it. But also you still get to see those big spikes and boxes and shiny chrome and lights and stuff. <laughs> Well, my producer, Jen, went last night and she said, and I said, how was the show? She was like, it was extremely entertaining and a lot of pyrotechnics. Yes. <laughs> oh, reaction. yes, there's a lot of pyro. We have someone, uh, our producer used to be a pyrotechnician, but he loves his pyrotechnics. And uh, yeah, we've got a big, we've got loads of a huge lighting rig as well. I can't remember the number of lights we have, but it's a huge number. And it really is a, like a spectacular show. When you work with folks doing your act, doing your mind reading or mentalism act, do you learn things about people? Of all the years you've been doing it, are, are you able to sum somebody up pretty quickly just by knowing and learning reactions people have to what you're about to do and how they respond that you can figure where they're going? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so as well. I know a lot of people tend to think they're quite good uh, judges of character or, you know, a lot of people love people watching and working things out about people. But I do tend to, uh, yeah, it makes me quite good at reading people in, you know, in normal situations, social situations. Although a lot of the techniques that I use are geared towards the fact that it's happening on stage and it's a, it's a theatrical performance. But a lot of those, the skills and techniques and things I've learned over the, over the years do bleed into everyday life as well. Yeah. But I normally I use them for slightly petty things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, being also, board games or... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure people don't want to play games with you necessarily. <laughs> no, not really. Apparently it's cheating. I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't think so either. Uh, I'm curious also, we see those folks who react to what you do with like shock and awe, and then there are the skeptics, the really heavy skeptics. Depending on where you are in the world, be it over in Europe or if you're over in the U.S., do you find more that are skeptical or more that are like, oh my God, I can't figure it out? Where do you see that reaction more? <laughs> There's various reactions. There are some people that no matter what you know, what kind of magic it is they see, they just don't want to know how it works because they know it would it would ruin the magic for them, I guess. And there are some people that absolutely really want to know, like it's a puzzle for them to solve. Um, also, over in Europe, especially in England, 
people tend to be a bit more skeptical and a bit more sort of, come on, then impress me. Whereas over here in, the, in North America, people are much more up for just having a good time. They don't want to think about it too much. And even if trying to work out how the tricks work is part of the fun for them, then they just want to have a, a, a good, some entertainment, even if you're just showing them something on the street or if you're, they're seeing it in the show. But I like what I love about magic, any kind of magic, is it doesn't matter if you're skeptical or a bit more of a believer. Um, uh, the whole point of magic is there is always a moment in every act or in any show, several moments, hopefully, where even a skeptic is just for a moment, not sure. Yeah. They're not sure. They're just, you just take this, they get that little feeling in their chest. They're like, whoa, what has happened? I have no explanation for what has happened. And that's the whole, that's the fun of it. You just take them to the edge and then show them sort of lift up the corner and just go, look at that. That could be amazing. And they're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, where we want people. We are really tight on time. Allison called in. I don't have time to take her call, but what her comment was was that she volunteers at the Hobby Center <laughs> and that Champions of Magic is one of the best shows she's ever seen. How's that, Alex? Oh, it's fantastic. Was that you say it's Allison? Is that right? Allison, yes. Allison. Oh, make sure I say hi to her when I, when I go back later. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. I'll get to see you on stage next week, but folks can see you on stage now through February 17th. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Alex McAleer is a mind reader currently appearing in Champions of Magic, which is playing at the Hobby Center for the Performing Arts. As I just mentioned, it's here through February 17th. You can find out more information about the show at thehobbycenter.org. Now, coming up, we'll break down last night's State of the Union address. What impact did President Biden's speech have on the country? Will we see both parties come together on important issues now? Plus, was the display of heckling from the Republicans good or bad for our future? Our phone lines are open for your questions and comments at 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. This is Town Square on your NPR station, News 88.7. I'm Ernie Manoos. We'll be right back. I'm Ernie Manoose, and this is Town Square. Last night's State of the Union address was energetic and more feisty than many years past. What are your thoughts about last year, last night's address, I should say? Phone lines are open for your questions and comments. 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. Or you can email us at talk at townsquaretalk.org. Let us know what you think. Right now to break it down with me is Julie Mason, host of Julie Mason Mornings on Sirius XM's POTUS channel, which can be heard weekdays from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Hello there, Julie. Ernie, how are you? We have not talked in forever, and I miss you every day. You're never far from my thoughts. It's so great to talk to you. <laughs> well, you have done so much since we last talked, but now you keep the nation informed every morning about what's going on in <laughs> politics on your POTUS Channel show. Do you get to stay up late enough to watch the State of the Union, to be up at 6 well, a.m. to do your show? It was, it was, a, it was rough, yeah. I, I stayed up to anchor State of the Union, and then I had to get up at 4 a.m. to prep for my morning show on Sirius XM. So it was, it, was a, it, was, it was tough, but, you know, we're all pros, Ernie. We can do it. We, we know how to, how to make it work. But I will say the president, I think, did us a favor by giving us a rather entertaining evening. What did you think? Oh, my gosh. Everyone was going in full of yawns, so bored, State of the Union, who cares? And then it ended up being an absolute romp. Like on yeah. every level. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I know I'll, I will get into it. We'll take it apart. But I got to start with one of my favorite tabloid parts of all of this, which really isn't tabloid because it's serious and it's important. But the whole George Santos thing and the Mitt oh, Romney man. kerfuffle with him. Uh, <laughs> and I'm kind of irritated because I think some reports are giving it incorrectly of what Mitt Romney said to him. It was after the fact that he went in a little harder, but that he's not supposed to be here. I don't believe was referring to him being in Congress, but more where he had chosen to sit, that he should be in the back cowering. Is that how you understand it? Yeah, but but probably also he shouldn't be in Congress. I mean, he really, George, apologies for my dog. Uh, George Santos really offends Mitt Romney. Like that became clear. I think Mitt Romney called him an ass <laughs> on the floor of the House, which is we're not used to that from the senator from Utah. So um, <laughs> that was an extraordinary moment, especially from Mitt Romney. But he's also held himself out to be like a man of great rectitude in mm-hmm. the Senate. I mean, you remember on January 6th, he was screaming at Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, saying, you did this. This is what you did. Yeah. So, you know, he's sort of the he's sort of the self-appointed truth teller of the U.S. Senate. What does George Santos tell you about where we are in politics today? I mean, not so much politics, but just the the the, the degradation of the Republican Party and the ends that Kevin McCarthy felt he had to go to in order to protect his own power. And when you talk to Republicans, you know, rank and file Republicans in the House. I talk to them every day. They're completely appalled. They're horrified. They don't want him around. They don't want him on committees. They're just they they just think it's a terrible situation. And the sooner that he's out of there, the better for everyone is generally the feeling. But you know, that district is not a Republican district. It could easily go to a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Well, to stay in the realm of slight tabloid, since you used to come from our area and this was your beat mm-hmm. to explain to me how Sheila Jackson Lee always has her aisle seat and always is able to get in there and shake oh hands God. with the president. Well, it's not just Sheila. When uh, when Louis Gohmert was in Congress, not even that long ago, you know, the bard of Tyler, as we call mm-hmm. him, he, they would sit there and, and those seats are not assigned. So they get there like hours early and stake out those seats in order to get the aisle seat. And they're willing to do that in order to get FaceTime with the president. Um, Congresswoman Jackson Lee is a bit more tenacious with a Democratic president. But, look, she's so hardworking. And what, whatever she needs to do to get her face on TV, like, I, I feel like it cannot be begrudged. I know that people have issues with her, but she is. And, uh, you know, and, and there were there were several uh, Houston members who were front and center last night. We saw um, Congressman Al Green. He kept waving. He was waving his cane that kept getting into the camera shot. And people were asking me, who is that guy? I was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. If I wasn't mistaken, when the president entered, he referred to him as Buddy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Well, I mean, the congressman's been around for quite a while. He's he's very well known. And so is Sheila Jackson Lee. So, yeah, they definitely get their face time. Okay. Off the tabloid into the subject at hand, the State of the Union. How would you score it as a presidential State of the Union? Uh, it's right up there. As I mean, Ernie, I've been here covering these for, what, like 23 years now. Wow. It was one of the most memorable ever. And I'll tell you why. Joe Biden brought a certain quality to it in the delivery. He was speaking to Congress, right? He wasn't 
speaking over the heads of Congress to the American people the way most presidents do. He was speaking directly to the room. And we don't see that. That was an extraordinary thing. And I think part of it was just because of where he's at politically, but also because he's such a creature of Congress. You know, that it's in him. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. He, he respects their traditions. And, and he felt like they were people he could talk to. And he wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, and I talked to lawmaker said Pete Buttigieg on my show this morning. And I asked him, you know, I said, you were in the room. What did you think about that? What was it like? And he said he thought it was great. He said, you know, it showed that Joe Biden can think on his feet, that he can he can like ver- take some screaming and some heckling from Republicans and roll with it and sort of master the moment. And and but then, you know, I talked to some Democratic lawmakers and they they didn't like it. They thought it was disgraceful. They thought it was a bad representation of politics. So I guess it just depends on, on where you land on this. But but just in terms of, of Biden showing up like like bedraggled in the polls. Not doing well um, with with just with a divided Congress and and Americans don't want him to run again and to come in that feisty and and put on that kind of a show I think was a bit of a tour de force for this president. We'll get into all that in a minute, but you do bring up a good point, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. On paper, you would think Biden is having a great term as president. Because it mm. seems like he's gotten a lot of things through and he's found bipartisan, he's found ways to work together. But it seems like, like you said, the American people just aren't feeling it. Do you think something like tonight, first of all, how can that be? And second of all, do you think something like last night changes that? Well, well, how it can be is because Biden keeps saying the economy is coming back and everything's going great and, and this and that and employment and inflation. People don't feel it, Ernie. Like people are still paying too much for everything and they're dipping into their savings and dipping into their 401k and they're struggling, you know, um, and not just like working class or middle class people, but everyone, everyone's feeling it and they're mad and they're mad at him. I don't think State of the Union turns that around. Um, I, I'm, it, it is the most watched political speech of the year and people really do tune in, but I don't think they're going to watch that and say, oh, Joe Biden's right. You know, everything's fine <laughs> until people are feeling it, until people feel this ease of this. Econ- the economy is, is Americans' number one issue. Until they feel an ease of that pinch, Joe Biden's not going to get a break. Am I wrong to think, though, all of this goes back to COVID-19? If we hadn't had such an upheaval, which was not to use this term, but unprecedented, uh, mm. we would be in a very different place today. It may not be great. It may be better. Who knows? But it wouldn't have been what we went through. And for any right. president to write a ship, I have been on a cruise ship when it's gone through a hurricane. To write that Ooh. ship is a lot more work than just to glide through the waters. Yeah. yeah. Is there it's any true. way that the president or the Democratic Party can find a way to share that message and say, listen, if you didn't have this leadership, it would be even worse. Yes, $6 a dozen eggs is ridiculous. It will come down, but you got to hold with us because we're saving the economy long term. No, because Americans, (laughs) no, I mean, you know, well, because the Republican Party is there and they're screaming about all the money out the door, you know, to pay for COVID, which they feel they believe overheated the economy and brought us this inflation. So that's their Mm -hmm. argument. So that's on the other side. But wasn't there a Republican president in place when that all started? Yeah, but but, you know, now you're getting into nuance, Ernie, and, you know, (laughs) politics is where nuance goes to die. All right. right. (laughs) I have no horse in this race (laughs) nor do i nor do i no no continue your thought i cut you off there oh okay (laughs) anyway and so right so so you have republicans and they're starting investigations into covid spending which actually is not a terrible exercise because there was so much 
fraud and we saw people, you know, siphoning millions that they didn't earn or that they didn't deserve and spending mm-hmm. it on Lamborghinis and all that. So that definitely needs a look. There's an estimate. I heard an estimate the other day, a hundred billion dollars in fraud from the COVID money. So that deserves a look. But in the process of looking at that, it's it's just going to reflect badly on on Biden either way. So people are going to be mad about that to the extent that they pay attention. But also just just Biden talking about he's he's just off he's just off message. He's talking about how great everything is. And like I said, until Americans feel that things are great, and I don't I don't know what I mean, I'm thinking back to the Clinton years, right? Remember when everyone was getting rich and, and the economy was just great and blowing up before it actually blew up. Yes, my parents have told me stories of that. <laughs> around the fire. Yes. yes. Um, until it's like that again, I think Biden is just going to have a really tough, a really tough time of it. Yeah. We're talking with Julie Mason, who's the host of Julie Mason mornings on Sirius XM POTUS channel. This is town square. I'm Ernie Manus. Our phone lines are open for your thoughts, comments, and questions at 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. So then let me ask you this. If, if the president is seen by a, a populace that feels things are bad in the economy, that they, they can't afford things like you said, all the, the litany of things you just went through, having him give a speech like this, in some ways, could it make him look more out of touch to the American people? Oh, no, I don't know about that because he talked about – because he didn't hit the, on, the, on the campaign trail when he's out talking to people like, um, you know, when he's out of D.C., he's, talk, he's talking up those great economic numbers. But they seem to have realized in the White House that telling people how great everything is is not a really good message. So mm-hmm. he didn't do that last night, and he talked more about – things he'd like to do. Um, and he got really granular with it, Ernie. We were really struck by that last night. He was talking about things that, you know, baggage fees and um, hotel fees. And the hotel like stuff made me laugh, though. Right? It was funny. And not even a resort. Not even a resort. But these things are rising to the level of a president's attention. And that makes people feel looked after. Like, oh, okay, mm. he gets it. Like, he understands he's not, you know, living in this ivory tower. Like, he gets it. So that was kind of the message there. So I think it's a, a beginning of an effort to mend those fences. What about the Made in America segment? Yeah, well, that has Europe and the EU really angry. <laughs> every, other con- every other country that makes cars is furious at Joe Biden because, <laughs> because he is cutting into their markets. So that's a little bit of an international trouble spot. But in terms of Americans... It's not a bad thing. Uh, what he was getting at was a sort of democratic version of the economic populism that we saw that became quite popular during the Trump administration. You know, like we are putting America's economic concerns first. We are bringing it back to America, buy American, hire American, all that. So, I, I mean, politically, it's not a bad move. I mm-hmm. mean, internationally, it's, you know, he, the G7 will be awkward this year. But <laughs> <laughs> domestically, it plays well. I don't know if I've just not been paying attention or I missed this, but I heard them referring to after the speech about Biden's blue collar playbook. What are we talking about there? I mean, I think just that um, talking about he's uh, like today he's in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. He's talking about union jobs. Mm-hmm. You can't get much more blue collar than that. You know, and that's a real he's like the union president. But interestingly, there's a bit of a contradiction in his push to make South Carolina the first primary state, because it's not really a union state. I think they have like a few thousand union members in the state, but separate issue. Um, Blue collar Joe. I mean, he's getting back to that message of like he's a regular guy. 
his economic message is trying to be like that. So, I mean, that's kind of what it's about. Like I said, that's economic populism, but with a democratic twist. We had a caller, Chris, who shared a comment with us. I thought the address was good, and it showed that Biden is trying to do his best and that it would have been a nightmare if the previous administration had stayed in power. I'm confident about this administration going forward. Do you think Chris uh, represents a lot of listeners and watchers out there from last night? <laughs> Maybe about half. Maybe a little <laughs> less than half. <laughs> I mean, going into the speech, Ernie, you saw the polls. You know, there was... Uh, terrific polling by the Washington Post, CBS News, and others heading into the speech over last weekend that found, you know, Americans, didn't, as I mentioned, don't want Joe Biden to run again. They think one term is enough. He's too old. Uh, they also, they don't like the job he's doing, 45%. You know, and, and although that Chinese balloon that doesn't seem to have cut into his job approval rating, but other things have, people uh, telling pollsters the economy is their biggest concern. They think the economy's bad. And so, you know, and also just the way we are in America right now, I don't think any president going forward, absent a calamity like 9-11, is going to have numbers over 50 percent. I mean, I yeah. just I, it's just really hard to see. We're too divided. Uh, I want to go back to the tabloidy element of this all. And I don't know if it's we've been trained yeah. that now the presidency is supposed to be a reality show. But I feel like I didn't get any payoff <laughs> to my Chinese balloon story last night. And I was waiting for something. Oh, my God. Well, you didn't see Marjorie Taylor Greene dressed as the balloon. She, she spent the whole day, Ernie, walking around the Capitol with a big white balloon, a bit like an actual balloon, just an innocent balloon, and tweeting pictures of herself with it. But then Kevin McCarthy told his conference, no shenanigans, no craziness, like just show up and be adults. Of course, they couldn't even pull that off. Uh, and and uh, so she was not allowed to bring her balloon into the chamber, although it wouldn't it have been so funny for Biden to give the speech with like just a balloon drifting around the house chamber. <laughs> the visual would have been hilarious. He I, would not have liked it. I think Kevin McCarthy would not have liked it. When you bring up Kevin McCarthy, I always think that those in the not-in-charge party sitting behind the president – having to sit there while they oh speak God. and what exactly mm -hmm. you do. And I've been at places where on stage something happens and the other characters in the show applaud and I start applauding and I realize, oh, wait, that's in the show. I'm not supposed to applaud. And I think there were moments of that with Kevin McCarthy. He heard clapping. He started to mm -hmm. clap. And he was like, oh, wait, I wasn't supposed to clap there. <laughs> he almost seemed sedated. But you're right. And he was, you know, he was left up there trying to shush uh, Republican uh, yes. members who were, you know, heckling, trying to quietly shush them and everything. But we saw Nancy Pelosi when when Trump gave his State of the Union, she ripping up his speech, yeah. giving him the sarcastic clap and everything. It was she uh, she pulled it off with a certain aplomb. Kevin Kevin McCarthy went in a different direction, trying to be a little, you know, low key dignified. Well, we're going to be a little low-key dignified. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue with Julie Mason, host of Julie Mason Mornings on Sirius XM POTUS channel. Our phone numbers here for your comments, thoughts, questions are 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. You can also interact with us and follow us on Twitter using at Town Square Talk. And to ensure you never miss an episode, remember, subscribe to the Ernie Manus podcast. That's not the name of it. It's Town Square with Ernie Manus, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Town Square and your NPR station, News 88.7. I'm Ernie Manus. We'll be right back.
This is Town Square. I'm Ernie Manus. On tomorrow's show, four-time Grammy winner Lyle Lovett. The Texas native joins us for the full hour to discuss his career in music, his new album, the 12th of June, and his new tour, which will be stopping in Galveston next week. That's tomorrow at 3 p.m. in the Square. You can email your questions and comments to Lyle starting now at talk at townsquaretalk.org. Today we're talking about America's political climate with Julie Mason, host of Julie Mason Mornings on Sirius XM POTUS channel. Our phone lines are open at 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. Gary's on the line. Gary, what's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to say that I'm 70 years old and I have voted twice in my life. I voted in 1972, the first year I became eligible, and I voted for George McGovern, and I got Nixon. Okay, well, another story. <laughs> so I voted the second time in 2020 to get rid of you-know-who, and I got Biden. And after that speech last night, damn it, I'm going to have to vote again for Mr. Biden. That was incredible. So he moved you, did he? Uh, well, very much. I was very impressed. I, I, I keep up with the news. I've heard I liked Obama, and I've, I've heard a lot of speeches, but I was just so impressed that he was so human and so real and so practical and so nice that I, I said, that's, that's my guy. So I just wanted to say that. Gary, thank you for calling, and I do want to remind you, I will encourage you, though, Vote more often. You're the kind of person we need to vote. Get out there and vote, Gary. Thank you very much. More good people, and I will. <laughs> okay, Gary, thank you. Julie, I guess the point is you're going to get the good people in if you get up and vote, you know? Yeah. we get When more people vote, we get better results here in yeah. America. And, uh, and, you know, and, we, and we've seen that turnout has been going up. So it's, it's a good thing when people vote. One thing I noticed in the speech that kind of Gary mentions is his uh, his liking, his uh, positive feelings towards Biden. I realized how easily he handed out praise, especially at the beginning of his speech. Mm-hmm. And that it wasn't a, I did this, I did that. It's like, together we, you have done this. We have to thank so-and-so for that. It was very, a, a different mm-hmm. style than we're used to seeing in politics these days. It was, and he was he was cheeky too. He was. Uh, oh, I'm sorry about my dog. He was talking about he was talking about Republicans showing up for the groundbreaking for those infrastructure projects they voted against, right? And he was saying, "It's all right, I like converts, you're cool." And uh, and then the traps that he laid for them as well on uh, Social Security, you know, because there have been Republicans, Ernie, who've been saying, "Well, we're going to have to cut Social Security." Let, let's case. talk like, about that. If you're following mm-hmm. social media, you saw a lot about that, and a lot of I don't know if it was just fear or not but it seems what biden was saying was factual correct Mm -hmm. yeah it was um and and right so he was saying you know he was saying you know not uh, hashtag not all republicans but he said there are republicans (laughs) who would like to slash benefits cut benefits make it harder for retirees in america and and they all started screaming Right. It was a, and he, it was a trap that he laid from They all started screaming, saying, no, no, we're not trying to do that. And he was like, oh, great. OK, so we're not going to do that. Good. Well, let's move on then. And it was kind of, but he did it with humor, with uh, a bit of grace, with, mm-hmm. with uh, self-deprecation. You know, he wasn't, you know, these lawmakers, Democrat and Republican, they really didn't like Barack Obama. He was very heavy handed. He lectured them. He just really held himself apart 
really talk down to people. He Boehner couldn't stand him. Legendarily, um, he would call Boehner on the phone, and Boehner would put the phone down and walk around the room, and he's like, <laughs> oh, not God. even listen. It was just, he just couldn't stand it. And so, but Biden has a different relationship. You know, when when Obama needed something done, who did he send to Capitol Hill? Biden. And Bi- mm-hmm. Biden would get all these deals done. So he has those relationships and, and he knows how to talk to them. And I think that was what, what your listener Gary was alluding to, that niceness, that friendliness, that he didn't need to be high handed with anyone. He could just be himself. So that that moment on Social Security, was that brilliant politicking or lucky happenstance? <laughs> oh, maybe a little bit of both. Um, I think it was very deft planning on the part of the president and his speechwriters to lure them into that corner, you know, like get them to deny that they wanted to switch up Social Security or slash benefits. And then when they were screaming about it, say, oh, good. So we agree. It was it was just it was very deft. But I don't know if I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was exactly planned that way. But again, um, as Pete Buttigieg said, it was it showed the president thinking on his feet. Yeah, which, yeah. you know, given all the concerns, legit concerns about his age, Ernie, he legit is an older gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, legitimate concerns about that. Maybe it uh, did a little bit to alleviate people who are watching their concerns that maybe he wasn't quite up for the job. And I thought it was interesting. I always and I've mentioned this before on the show, I get so worried whenever he speaks because I like what he's doing. I like what he has to say, but I'm always worried he's going to make some gaffe that's going to steal the news cycle for the next <laughs> Lord knows how long. And last night I was pleasantly surprised. Yes, I think at one point when talking about how to talk to your kids, he referred to them as honey. But other than that, he I always do- does. No, he always does. He calls his kid honey. He calls kids honey. Yeah, he, yeah. His his parents called him honey. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I learn something every day mm-hmm. on this show. But I thought he did pretty well without many gaffes. A couple times I think he spoke too fast and stumbled some lines, but for the most part, he was on top of it. Well, he couldn't remember the name of the Ukrainian ambassador, <laughs> even well, though it was on a script. I think he couldn't remember how to say it. I've I've hit that day many times on this show, so I'm right Who there with us? him on that. Who among us? Yeah, and I'm not being watched <laughs> by millions upon millions of people when I do it, so I apologize for it when I do it. But I thought he he handled the evening very well. I thought. Um, I want to go back to the phones eight 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 four eight six nine six seven seven. Josh is on the line. Josh, what's on your mind? Oh, um, my name is John, but that's okay. Ernie, I was hearing you talk about uh, Sheila Jackson Lee uh, being in the spotlight there. And I was so overwhelmed. I met her one time. She came to my school to talk, and I it's just like, why would she come to this little school? But then after that, I just watched she's everywhere, isn't she? <laughs> she is and everywhere. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just amazed at how powerful a speaker she is. Yeah. And yet when I was talking to a colleague at, at the college, uh, they said they didn't like what she said. She wasn't eloquent. And and then they said, well, I'm a Republican. Does that mean that Republicans um, can't admire eloquent speakers? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, John, thank you for that. From In my defense, Josh was next in line to come online, and he dropped, and you got bumped up. But we were going to get to you anyway, John, but thank you for your comments. Um, I think he brings up a good point. Have we gotten to a point, Julie, where – you can't, and I think that's what the president seemed to do last night. Something that isn't happening anymore, where you can be proud of other folks on other sides of the aisle for the things they mm-hmm. do, and still believe mm-hmm. in what you want to do. True. It seems like we've lost that. It's true. Yeah, Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, she was a Houston City Council member for years. 
Uh, I covered her, and and for those who are listening who aren't familiar with me, I spent nearly 20, I actually spent 20 years at the Houston Chronicle, Mm -hmm. so she and I go way back. Uh, She's a (laughs) Yale-educated attorney. She's incredibly impressive, and she's very eloquent, but yeah, everything now is viewed through the lens of politics and partisanship. And so, yeah, if you're a Republican, you don't like her. And some Democrats don't like her. You know, that's just, it's just what politicians deal with now. And it's just the way of our politics. What truly won me over to the Sheila Jackson Lee camp was I was at an event one day and she came into the event and it was the opening of some store or something. And she came up to me because she recognized me and she said, Ernie, what are we here for? What is this event? And uh, we explained to her what it was and who was being honored. And while we were talking to her, she got called to the podium. She walked up onto that stage and took the little bit of information we had given her and spun it into mm-hmm. the most wonderful speech about these owners of this new entity coming to this city to bring these jobs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, now there's someone who knows how to think on their feet. And it yep. was impressive. Yep. And I have always, I, yeah. I bow down before her since that day because that's genius when you can do that. <laughs> Uh, Speaking about partisanship, uh, after, if you stuck around long enough, it seemed a very long wait this time, we got Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the uh, Republican response. What did you think there? Mm I I thought it was an off note. I I think that Mm -hmm. she has tremendous skill and tremendous ability, and she obviously is is the future of the Republican Party. As she pointed out, she's 40 years old. She's the youngest governor in America, and she's going places. She will run for president someday. She's a cancer survivor, a mom, etc. That's to take nothing away from her. I think being the out party and giving the response is such a tough job. And so she came in she came in hot with this very negative, very dark message talking about crazies and the Democrats are crazy and, and Biden is a hostage of a woke mob. And it, 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 it was the wrong message for that night because Biden didn't come off that way. He didn't come off as crazy or woke. And so she, it was a little off point. So I think it was a missed opportunity. That speech would work great in a different context. And uh, I'm sure the speech meant a lot to people who agree with her and needed to hear that be said. But in terms of an actual response to the State of the Union, it, it just it landed flat. Yeah, I got the feeling that that was a response written to a speech not given and that. Yeah. And I was hoping that the reason it was taking so long was they were realizing what they expected the president to say wasn't what he said. And they were trying to adjust mm-hmm. the speech back. But if they yeah. were, they yeah. did not go far enough. It seemed angry and mean and uh, uh, accusatory mm-hmm. and attacking dark when dark. yeah dark mm-hmm. when the president's speech seemed to be uh pointing toward uplifting and all that and I, I think we mentioned maybe i didn't mention it on the air to you but they have come out now with the fact sheets looking at both speeches and it seems for the most part the president was factual in what he said maybe in some cases needing further explanation to it but he did pretty good on the truth scale and that she didn't do so well on that. Is that what you're seeing from early reports? Yeah. Well, I mean, and that certainly was my experience when she was White House press secretary. <laughs> <laughs> so no big shock. Yeah, no big shock there. Uh, another thing I was curious about watching it, and I thought, well, I'll ask Julie about this. How do they pick who they invite to the State of the Union? And have they always done this? Or is this something more of the modern time of bringing in people we can point to when we're talking about a particular issue? You know, it really that really came in with President Reagan. Um, do you remember with Lenny Skutnik? He was um, he was just a regular worker here in Washington D.C. who threw himself into the Potomac when a plane went down right. <laughs> in in the water, 
And he jumped in to save people and then got an invite to State of the Union and got a shout out from Reagan. And and so these guests, you know, we call them human props or Skutniks. And and um, it, it was it was a, a powerful moment. And now they all do it. And so everyone who was in, um, in the first ladies in, in her area, in the first ladies box in the gallery, they all touched on a theme that the president was talking about. There was a parent who had lost their kids, uh, their kid to fentanyl and a fentanyl overdose. Mm-hmm. There was Bono who was up there re- representing PEPFAR. There was Paul Pelosi, you know, and, and Biden made reference to the big lie. Um, and, you know, and people like that and the Ukrainian ambassador and, and et cetera. So they were all people who illustrated points that Biden wanted to make in his speech. And that's how they choose them. And then, of course, Tyree Nichols' parents were, were there mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so, so that's how they pick it. And it's really become almost like a, a test of presidential skill. Some do it better than others. You know, some, some do it more deftly than others, call out the names of real people and tell their stories. And if a president has real empathy, uh, he can do it. So, uh, like Trump really didn't. I mean, he would have like Rush Limbaugh you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and stuff like that. And then others, the lawmakers bring guests too, and they sit in the galleries as well. And they'll do, they'll invite like a white supremacist or like Ted Nugent or, you know, or, or, you know, on the other side, someone in their district who had done something um, admirable or, or great. Um, one person he had was um, that young man who had disarmed the shooter in, um, in California just right. recently. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was very poignant. And I think it was Trump who had a North Korean defector. And that was a powerful moment. And, and so, you know, they, they, they use them in different ways. But, yeah, it goes back to Reagan. Yeah. Uh, and looking back at the speech last night, place where you think maybe the president had a major misstep and where you think he really hit something brilliantly. <sighs> misstep. Um, you know, he, he, he went through so many topics so fast mm-hmm. that I don't think he had a chance to make a misstep or if he did, I might've just been spacing out through that. Um, and <laughs> I was trying he... to keep a list of each topic as they came up and before I could write anything he said about it, he was onto the next topic and I'm like, he's hitting right, everything exactly. in the playbook. Yeah, they put so much into it. I mean, j- the thing that jumped out to me, the thing we already talked about was the granular level of detail about mm-hmm. Fees, you know, he was talking about bank fees, baggage fees, junk fees, um, and he said, you know, I have your back. He t- he was talking about medical bills, seniors, um, hotel hotels, etc. And and I felt that 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 was it was it was interesting to me that those kinds of issues rose to the notice of of, of a president of the United States, and that was pretty unusual for a president to get into that. So I I, I thought that really resonated. What about bringing up abortion rights? Right time? Right reaction from the galley? Yeah. I mean, it's not going to go anywhere. He brought up a lot of things that aren't going to go anywhere. Police reform, you know, Mm -hmm. um, abortion rights, and and his veto threats. He made a couple of veto threats. Like, if, if lawmakers repeal the Inflation Reduction Act and raise costs for medicine, uh, for seniors and others, he will veto it. But, well, they're not going to do that. And if lawmakers impose a nationwide ban on abortion, he will veto that. Well, that's not going to happen. So. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask this. A lot of people are saying that last night was actually the launch of his 2024 campaign. Your thoughts? Uh, um, soft mm. launch. Kevin McCarthy had Kevin McCarthy had asked him, please don't go hard on mega MAGA or ultra MAGA or you know what I mean? He asked him, like, please, let's, like, if you could keep it civil, that would be great. 
And that wasn't, it wasn't really the venue for that. As I mentioned, I did make reference to the so-called big lie about the 2020 election. And that was as far as he went. But when, when President Biden is campaigning for re-election, he's going to be going hard, drawing contrast between himself and former President Trump or whoever emerges as the Republican frontrunner. So this wasn't a political speech and it's not meant to be. So, I mean, the timing coincides with sort of we're heading up to the point where Biden's expected to announce his re-elect. But I, I, it was not necessarily a political speech. Yeah. We've both been in this game a long time, and we've seen folks on both sides of the aisle. And what people may be surprised to see is that in the past, at least, they all seem to get along. And then you get them on the shows or in front of wherever they need to be, and then they bicker and fight. And then afterwards, they go off for coffee. Is that still happening in Washington, or has no. the, have those days gone? It's really changed, Ernie. And it's, and it's so sad to see because, you know— they really don't like each other and they, they don't trust each other anymore. They don't work together. Some of them do. Some of them do great. And, and they and they really do reach across the aisle and have friends from the other party. But by and large, nope. Yeah. Well, Julie, thank you so much. Talking of friends, it's good to talk to you again, friend. It's been <laughs> too long. Please come back and join us again. Anytime, Ernie. It's a real pleasure. Shout out to all my Houston people. Thank you. Julie Mason is the host of Julie Mason Mornings on Sirius XM POTUS channel, where she can be heard every weekday morning from nine a, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. We also want to thank our illusionist who was on the show early, Alex McAleer, who is with Champions of Magic. If you missed any of today's show, remember Town Square is available as a daily podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Town Square Talk. Remember, tomorrow at 3 p.m. on the next Town Square, four-time Grammy winner and Houston's very own Lyle Lovett joins us to take your calls and questions. That's tomorrow at 3 p.m. right here on Town Square. Uh, for Houston Public Media, I'm Ernie Manoos. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk again tomorrow. Town Square with Ernie Manoos is a production of Houston Public Media. The opinions expressed by guests and callers do not necessarily reflect the views of the staff, management, or underwriters of this station. Medical opinions should not replace consultation with a medical professional.